Welcome, everybody. My name is Makal Nasrani, and this is Islam for Christians. Episode 43, Islamic History, circa 616 to 619, The Boycott. Back in 1940, you know, from a military perspective, the Germans were on top of the world. They had taken all the territories with majority German populations. They had annexed Austria and brought it into the Greater Reich. They had steamrolled Poland, which brought France and Britain into the war. And then they took out France in the blink of an eye, at least by the standards of the previous war, which is just a long, ugly, years-long slide. This happened in a matter of weeks. And they forced a British evacuation off of the continent. They even took Norway for good measure. So, as they said in the movie The Producers, this was springtime for Hitler and Germany. And they probably saw an even more prosperous and victorious future on the horizon. He had big plans, looking to the east and drooling at the prospect of completely liquidating the hated Jewish-aligned communists, at least as he saw it, they were Jewish-aligned communists, and then killing all the Russian people along with them. Now, this could be done, he convinced himself. The Russian military was a basket case, and that lunatic Stalin had purged most of his best generals. Now was the time to strike. But at the same time, he also remembered the last war, the two-front disaster that slowly ground down Germany like a glacier carving a new landscape. He thought, I really don't want to repeat that, and really, I shouldn't have to. What is with Britain anyway? Will no one rid me of this meddlesome island? Can't they see that this is over? But unfortunately for Hitler, and fortunately for the rest of the world, an enemy is not defeated until he considers himself to be defeated. Now, this is still Islam for Christians, okay? So just bear with me for a little bit. Uh, I'm going somewhere with this. This will eventually make sense. So Britain was not cooperating, almost daring the Germans to cross the English Channel. And soon it became obvious to both sides that this just wasn't going to happen. The Germans just weren't going to cross the Channel. It was impossible. So for Germany, now was the time to get creative. Some kind of agreement needed to be reached, and it needed to be reached fast. Now first, they tried drawing on mutual interests with Britain. The German and English, after all, were of the same racial stock, which was an important thing at that time in that place. They were Germanic people, the Angles and the Saxons, and both spoke Germanic languages. They all came from the same place. So why fight over Poland, a backwater full of Slavic people as they saw it? Germany and England are natural allies. Of course, the English didn't really care about any of that. They weren't quite as racially obsessed as uh, Hitler was. Um, so that fell flat, you know, especially under, you know, Winston Churchill's uh, leadership that just, I mean, agreements in general were probably off the table, but that certainly was not going to get anywhere. So then they tried compromise. Now, in his mind, Hitler was sure that the British would agree to peace for the sake of their empire. 
you know, Britain did not have the men or firepower to defeat Germany in a continental war, in a land battle. And surely they knew that. Britain's power was at sea. Let Britannia rule the waves and keep their empire. That's got to be an enticing offer, right? And what did Germany care? Germany is a land power. Always has been. Always would be. Surely the English wouldn't risk losing India and the Middle East and the African colonies and the rest of their sprawling empire over a war that really has no benefit to them. But again, Churchill was in charge. There was simply too much mistrust to believe anything that came from Germany. And this would be a battle to the death. So they tried diplomatic isolation and propaganda. The Nazis encouraged isolationism in the United States, targeting German-Americans in particular. And then they roused up anti-Semitism in the Middle East. And there was fertile ground for this because they weren't, you know, the Arabs at least were not terribly happy with the massive Jewish immigration into the neighborhood over the last 50 years. So then the Nazis went for terror giving up on targeting the Royal Air Force planes and industrial sites in favor of bombing and demoralizing civilians. And, of course, this turned out to be counterproductive in the end. So none of this worked. Britain still stood. So what do you do with this pesky force that just refuses to go away? If peace was not to be made, and German troops were never going to make it onto the island, there was really only one option left. A blockade. But there were two huge problems with that. Number one, the Germans did not have air superiority, and it just wasn't realistic to take on the Royal Navy, which is the number two problem. You know, at least on the surface, there was no way they could ever have the naval dominance that would require any kind of cross-channel invasion. But Karl Dönitz, the admiral of the Kriegsmarine, which is the German Navy, he was convinced that with enough submarines, they could starve the island into submission. And it wasn't a terrible plan, especially since now the subs had way more range than before, because they could launch from France and Norway. When they could only launch from Germany, that was just a way, way longer circuitous route, you know, from the Baltic out to the greater sea. Just look at... Uh, Look at a map of that sometime, and you can see, just think, you know, in the 1940s, how much fuel would be burned just getting near <laughs> the English Channel, or even getting near the North Sea, you know, let alone getting way out into the Atlantic to hit any of these convoys. Um, but still, in the end, there just were not enough submarines, and the countermeasures just became too effective. And enough shipping made it through to supply and, and feed the Allies. So keep that in mind. Keep that situation in mind. And remember that dynamic. Because this situation between Germany and Britain is actually very similar to something that happened in Islamic history. So with that in mind, let's rewind about 1,300 years. So the Muslims found themselves in a very, very similar situation to what I just described. That's why I went into all that. I'll be on a far, 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 far smaller scale. 
Um, so the Muslims were playing the part of the British, opposed to a far more powerful force, at least at the time. Muhammad was Churchill. Abu Lahab was Hitler. The Muslims were under pressure, pressure that continued to grow every year. The more powerful pagans of the Quraysh grew more and more intolerant and more and more impatient. And they started to unleash the Nazi playbook I just described to you. The Quraysh tried drawing on mutual interests. They were all Arabs, after all, and most of the people who mattered in Mecca were all Quraysh. And as Quraysh, they had a common economic interest in the success of the city. The most obvious is the tourism from the Kaaba, but Mecca's sanctuary status as a holy place also kept their caravans safe outside of Mecca as they traveled around the Arabian Peninsula. So if Mecca was no longer sacred, the city could become impoverished. Surely the Muslims saw that, and surely there was a mutual interest there. But that didn't work. So then the Quraysh tried compromising. Okay, they said to the Muslims, you can have your God, and we can have ours. It's not like we haven't had Jews and Christians here before. We will recognize your God if you recognize our gods. So yeah, the, the Quraysh had met some Jews and Christians, but clearly they really hadn't paid much attention to what they were saying, because the Jewish and Christian God, and now the Muslim God, was not a tribal god. I don't think they, at least most of them, probably didn't get that. He was not a personal totem of good fortune. He was not one god among many. He was the god. Allah, the god, the one and only. Muhammad knew this, and over time, it just made compromise impossible. And at one point later on, well into the boycott, we'll get into that later, he was offered a compromise to worship his god for one year and the traditional gods the next year. Now you can imagine what Muhammad thought of that. You know, obviously, that's impossible. So then, following the playbook, the Quraysh tried diplomatic isolation and propaganda. They beat their slaves until they renounced. They spread lies about Muhammad and the Muslims and even tried to pressure the kingdom of Abyssinia to return renegade Muslims. The propaganda campaign was relentless, with the Quraysh unleashing the finest poets in Arabia to write horrible things about those that they were targeting. And in those days, in Arabia, this was the equivalent of Joseph Goebbels saturating the airwaves. But it just still wasn't making the dent they had hoped for. So then they went for terror, killing Muslim slaves and those without tribal or some other form of protection. Many Muslims remained secret, but were Muslims nonetheless. This could not stomp out Muhammad's message. It was just too strong. And so, like the Nazis, the Quraysh decided on a blockade. We'll starve them out, they decided. But like Hitler, the Quraysh didn't have quite enough power to do this completely, but they could do a lot, and the Quraysh version of submarine warfare was the economic boycott. And that's the name of this period in Islamic history, 
the boycott. That's the title of this episode. It was 616 to 619. And like the British living under constant Luftwaffe attacks, it would mean several years of isolation, pain, hunger, and for some, death. Its effects lingered well beyond its time, arguably weakening two of Muhammad's most beloved family members to the point where they would die not long after it was over. The term boycott brings to mind economic things, a sort of economic embargo by one group on another. You know, or in our time, it's usually some ideological group that has a problem with a company for some reason. That's the most common kind of boycott. And so they decide, because of this reason, I will not buy their products. And it was like that, sort of. But it was a step above, many steps above, because it was way more than just simple economic isolation. It was also a geographic isolation, along with the specter of a security situation that could disappear in a heartbeat. So this wasn't just economically devastating. It was physically dangerous. This is why they all moved into a gorge on the outskirts of town. They did that so that they could at least rely on each other. Still, they had to live with the worst kind of uncertainty. They had to know. They must have known that if the other tribes really mustered the will, they could kill every one of them the next day. It's a bit hard to imagine being physically insecure for that long. I think the only people that might understand that, at least in my country, are the people who have been homeless long term. And I think it's one of the few situations where taking drugs to cope is kind of understandable. You know, I can't say I fully understand that, but, you know, would you sleep out in the open under a bridge being homeless all day with no money? Would you do that sober? You know, so you do have kind of a weird situation of, you know, sort of a chicken and egg thing. You know, does the homelessness cause drug addiction or does drug addiction cause homelessness? Um, probably a bit of both. Um, but the situations that drive people to homelessness and what keeps them in that situation are still largely beyond my comprehension. But the thing I think most about when I think about that is the grinding mental breakdown that must come with constant physical insecurity. How could you get a good night's sleep like that? You know, your imagination would just run wild. And it wouldn't just have to be your imagination. There'd be a realistic possibility that someone could just come up and kill you. Um, it's something I've been trying pretty much in vain to actually understand in preparation for this episode. What would something like that feel like? What would the Muslims have been thinking during this period? What did the boycott do to their psyches? And really, the only insight, useful insight, I think I can bring to this is that I did experience a much, much lighter version of this um, a few years ago, back in 2020. Now, I lived in a not quite gentrified area of the city during the summer riots, and it changed me forever. And that was only two days, tops. 
there was really only one lawless night where I lived at least. And it did instill a sense of panic, knowing that if you call the police, they're not coming. And you, your mind starts to go wild and thinking about who you know that might take advantage of that situation and thinking of all the reasons your house might be a target and what they might do to your family. And that relying on your alarm system is like sheltering under tissue paper and hoping that a local street gang, as they had been boasting, really did have the ability to maintain order. Now, thinking back to how that felt, it's still kind of hard to describe. On my street corner, there was a young, rough-looking young man with a sign that said, Protega es Barrio. And I later put it into an internet translator. And I think it means, I protect the neighborhood. I think. I don't speak Spanish, but this may have been a gang member. Or it may just have been some lone guy saying, hey, I'm here to help. I really don't know. But that was the first time that day that my brain started to send signals that I was living in some kind of bizarre, almost fictional landscape that I was going to see something I had never seen before and feel something I was never going to, that, that I just hadn't felt before, never would feel again, hopefully. It, it just didn't feel real. And I imagine the new residents of the gulch outside of Mecca thought the same thing in the first days that they were there. How on earth did it come to this? So from the eerie signs in Spanish that urged people to protect the neighborhood to the surreal feeling of driving down your street and feeling like you were watching some strange movie from the outside, like you weren't even in it. You almost felt like you were watching it. And then you see the dumpsters blocking 18th Street and the sudden racism I witnessed as self-deputized residents made damn sure no one came into the neighborhood who did not look like they belonged there. And then there were the broken windows and the boarded up ones and the chaotic impotence coming from the police scanner all night long. In such a short, short time span, it was a whole new world. Now, no one expected that to last. But just the knowledge of how fragile this whole thing is gets lodged in your brain, and it can never be removed. You can't help but have an epiphany on the nature of man, and it's not a positive one. And again, comparatively, this was a small thing. This, this was not like some giant breakdown of society. Well, by American standards, it was. Uh, you know, I'm sure there are people listening that find this hilarious because they have seen far, far, far worse. And maybe they even see it routinely. So, yeah, it wasn't really that bad. Some temporary light anarchy cannot be compared to a war or a siege that maybe some of you have actually experienced. And I, that's an, uh, I cannot wrap my head around what that would do to a person or say three years in a refugee camp, which was essentially the same situation the boycotted people found themselves in. What I experienced was an appetizer. The boycotted were being force-fed a thousand-course meal of insecurity and anxiety. 
just try to think about what that meant for the Muslims going forward and remembering this, you know, just how important the later move to Medina to a safe place must have felt. Okay, so for those who don't know this story, I suppose I should tell it. Um, let's do some nuts and bolts here. First of all, who was being boycotted? It actually was not just Muslims. In fact, Muslims weren't even the main target of this whole thing. I mean, they were, but not entirely. You know, it, it was much because it was much easier to dish out collective punishment on Muhammad's entire clan. So the whole of the Banu Hashim clan were being boycotted. So were the Banu Mutalib clan, which were closely related to the Banu Hashim. So after years of persecuting the Muslims, the haters turned their sights on the protectors of the Muslims, the clan chief Abu Talib, Muhammad's uncle and protector. Now, this was actually a pretty smart end around on the, on the Quraysh's part, because the idea was to put enough pressure on the leadership to give up Muhammad. Surely the Banu Hashim would not stand in solidarity with Muhammad particularly when most of them were not even Muslims. Now, clearly, these people did not understand the traditional view of clan and or country. Or actually, they probably did, but they were just maybe conveniently ignoring that or hoping it wouldn't apply. You know, I know personally, I've done some pretty irrational things to defend people that were even tangentially related to me. And the Banu Hashim were no different. Faced with an outside threat, the whole tribe stood with Muhammad, at least in principle, or out of sheer spite for their enemies. And this made sense, because what good is a tribe if the tribe does not stand together? There would be no point in having a tribe if they didn't protect their own, no matter how loony they thought one of them may have been. So this wasn't just the stubbornness of Abu Talib. It was true tribal solidarity. No one wants war, but the Banu Hashim weren't about to fold over either. So the proclamation came. Ratified by all the other tribes in Mecca, it stated that the other tribes would not buy from the Banu Hashim, they would not sell to them, and they would not marry with them either. This is terrible news. But really, backing down would probably have been worse, at least in the long term, um, than enduring even the horrors to come. Uh, because basically, you would be in a submissive position as a tribe forever. So when he heard this, Abu Talib laments the situation. But like a wise old statesman, he issues a warning to his oppressors. Uh, this is from an Oxford translation of uh, Ishaq Surat uh, Rasulullah, one of the early Islamic histories. So it's a guy named Ishaq who wrote Sirat Rasul Allah. And Sirat Rasul Allah just means the life of the messenger of God. In other words, Muhammad. So these are Abu Talib's words. Awake. 
awake before the grave is dug, and the blameless and the guilty are as one. Follow not the slanderers, nor sever the bonds of love and kinship between us. Do not provoke a long, drawn-out war. Often he who brings on war tastes its bitterness. By the Lord of the temple, we will not give up Ahmad, which is Muhammad. Again, by the Lord of the temple, we will not give up Ahmad. To harsh misfortunes and time's troubles, before hands and necks, yours and ours, they're cut by the gleaming blades of Kusas, which is a mountain with a whole lot of iron mines where they made weapons. Before hands and necks, yours and ours, are cut by the gleaming blades of Kusas in a close-hemmed battlefield where you see broken spears and black-headed vultures circling round like a thirsty crowd. The galloping of the horses about the scene and the shout of warriors are like a raging battle. Did not our father Hashim geared up his loins and teach his sons the sword and the spear? We do not tire of war until it tires of us. We do not complain of misfortune when it comes. We keep our heads and our valor when the bravest lose heart in terror. Now, it didn't come to that quite yet, although actually it would, just not during Abu Talib's lifetime. But this would be more of an economic siege than a war. But Abu Talib gathered the Banu Hashim, his clan, Muslims and non-Muslims alike, who would suffer together in close quarters on the outskirts of Mecca. So it's important to remember that this was almost entirely a tribal affair, even though Islam was the ultimate target, or the tangential target, whichever one you want to call it. The non-Banu Hashim Muslims weren't part of this at all, unless they wanted to be. And Islamic historians are not kind to the Muslims who decided to remain in the city and did nothing. I'm not sure how many of these people there were, but keep in mind that any Muslim who had not fled to Abyssinia and was not a Banu Hashim was probably, almost by definition, a powerful individual who could take care of himself. Not all. I'm sure there were some exceptions. But the Muslims who stayed in the city were the upper class and the protected. And I'm sure there were some lower class Muslims even those from non-boycotted tribes, or no tribe at all, who did end up in Abu Talib's makeshift village. Okay, so back to the people being boycotted. So why were they on the outskirts of Mecca? This was Abu Talib's idea. He saw the bigger picture, the greater danger. That's why I read you the poem uh, a little earlier. It was not safe for any of his people in the city, even if this was not an all-out war. They weren't technically forced out of Mecca, but who would assist them if a house caught on fire? Or more likely, it was intentionally set on fire. Who would assist if an angry mob came in the night? They were ghosts, after all. So no one cares if a ghost burns, and no one cares if a ghost dies, either. If you've ever seen or heard stories about the pogroms against Jews in Europe, you know, back in medieval times, I mean, pretty much all the way up until the, the 20th century, uh, this is the type 
of danger Abu Talib saw. Um, there's this insecurity where you knew that maybe the majority doesn't like you and the authorities will not protect you. You're out on a limb. You're exposed. You know, it would be a vulnerability, you know, that by simple probability would almost definitely result in the murder of his people. So like a herd of animals on the African savanna, they rightly thought it was better to stay in one group rather than be picked off one by one by the lions. The British convoy system, 1300 years later, would come to the same conclusion. Sir William Moore, a 19th century Islamic scholar, or an Orientalist, depending on your perspective, he put it this way. The Hashemites, that's the what he calls the Banu Hashim, the Hashemites were unable to withstand the tide of public opinion which set in so violently against them, and apprehensive, perhaps, that it might be only the prelude of open attack, or of blows in the dark still more fatal. They retired to the secluded quarter of the city known as Sheb of Abu Talib. It was formed by one of the, of the defiles or indentations of the mountains, where the projecting rocks of Abu Kobais pressed upon the eastern outskirts of Mecca. It was entered on the city side by a low gateway, through which a camel passed with difficulty. It's pretty narrow. <laughs> on all other sides, it was detached from the town by cliffs and buildings. On the first night of the month of the seventh year of the mission of Muhammad, the Hashemites, including the prophet and his family, ret retired into the quarter of Abu Talib, and with them followed also the descendants of Al-Abu Talib, the brother of Hashim. The ban of separation was put rigorously in force. The Hashemites soon found themselves cut off from their supplies of corn and other necessities of life, and a great scarcity ensued. The falling stock of the Hashemites, replenished only by occasional and surreptitious ventures, reduced them to want and distress. The citizens could hear the wailing of the famished children within the Sheb, among the relatives of the isolated band, were found some who ventured, in spite of threats to the Quraysh, or just, it says threats of the Quraysh, it's probably from the Quraysh, to introduce from time to time provisions by stealth at night into the quarter of Abu Talib. Hakim, grandson of Khalid, used, though the attempt was sometimes perilous, to carry supplies into his aunt Khadijah. So, basically, they're smuggling supplies in. So yeah, it was a pretty bad situation. They quite literally had their backs up against the walls. You know, so that they could force, you know, face this narrow entrance, um, which is described as hard to get a camel through. Um, that's a terrific defensive position. But, you know, how long can you stay there? So, who was spearheading this boycott? Now, technically, it was everyone. But who was the most enthusiastic enforcer of the boycott? That would be our old pal... Abu Lahab. But wait a second, wasn't Abu Lahab Muhammad's relative? Wouldn't that make him Banu Hashim? That's a very astute observation if you thought that. Um, now, 
as if Abu Lahab wasn't enough of a loathsome character. In this situation, he actually broke with his clan, and he was the only one of them who stayed in Mecca. He renounced his membership in the Banu Hashim, completely abandoning Arabic tradition and values. So, you know, Dante would have put him in the same circle of hell as Brutus, Judas, and Cassius. And for the record, as far as I know, he was the only Banu Hashim to turn on his clan. Of course, there was still a worry at the time that someone within the clan would still try to kill Muhammad, ending this once and for all. So he slept in different beds on different nights at the direction of Abu Talib, which really shows Abu Talib's sincerity. You know, he really loved his nephew, even though he was not a Muslim himself. You know, if Muhammad dies, this all goes away. But not only does he officially protect him, he's going out of his way and using his best strategy to make sure that his nephew stays alive and that, you know, his fellow, one of his fellow clansmen doesn't kill him. So the siege went on and sympathizers managed to occasionally smuggle in food and water, but it was hard. One of the people often standing in the way of this was a guy named Abu Jal, J-A-H-L. Abu Jal was a vigilant enforcer of the boycott, creeping around the Banu Hashim refugee camp and denouncing anyone who brought them provisions. On one occasion, a friend of Khadijah's nephew was sneaking in provisions, and Abu Jal caught him. Now, Abu Jal should not be confused with Abu Lahab, by the way. Abu Jal was not from Muhammad's tribe like Abu Lahab, but he was just as much of a Muslim hater. Anyway, their confrontation devolved into a fight, and the smuggler found the jaw of a camel, meaning a big bone, kind of like the one Samson used to slay his oppressors in the biblical story. So he took the bone and hit Abu Jal in the face with it, then stomped on him, giving him a violent beatdown. But he stopped just short of killing him. Now remember that in this society, killing was a huge deal. He'd have to pay a blood ransom. It would be a big mess. But beatings didn't seem to be that huge of a deal. And these kinds of incidents continued to happen as time went on. And it showed the flaw in the Qureshi plan. Because the Qureshi United Front was mostly on paper. And there was no formal overlord to enforce all of this just motivated haters like Abu Lahab and Abu Jal. There was no central command, no real organization, and really for so many people, not much motivation either. Because the thing is, for most of Mecca, their hearts just weren't in this. They didn't want to do it. One major reason was that many of the boycotted were relatives of the boycotted. You know, what I mean is many of the people boycotting were relatives of the people being boycotted. Take Khadijah, for example, who had married into the Banu Hashim when she married Muhammad. So there were still plenty of people in her home clan who loved her. That was true for many more of the Banu Hashim, most of which weren't even Muslims and were being forced into this ridiculous situation through no fault of their own. 
so eventually five of these powerful, well-funded sympathizers managed to find each other. And they decided it was time to force the annulment of the boycott. And the next day, when they knew everyone would be at the Kaaba, one of them put on a robe, went around the Kaaba seven times, and said, O people of Mecca, are we to eat and clothe ourselves while the Banu Hashim perish, unable to buy or sell? By God, I will not rest until this evil boycotting document is torn up. Now, Abu Jal was there as, as well, and naturally he objected. But the man, speaking on behalf of the five, told everyone that they hated this. And not only did they hate it, they hated it from the start. Then one of them tore up the document, or what was left of it after three years exposed to various insects or worms or whatever, and it blew away. And this act of courage was enough. The fever broke, the dam broke, and the other prominent elders of the tribes agreed it was time to end this. Um, this is often how these thought-free periods tend to end, too. You know, I've I've seen this. <laughs> Not that exactly, but I've seen similar things in my in my time on Earth. You know, I want to use the term moral panic here. That would be pretty accurate for what happened, but it's not exactly the same thing that I'm talking about. You know, a thought-free period is a moral panic combined with mass hysteria, combined with mass social coercion, and often mass social coercion that is being applied by a very small and vocal minority, much like the boycott. And that last part is what makes these events so powerful, is the, is the social coercion. It's so prolonged and so destructive. You have entered a no-thinking zone, and it will be enforced by powerful institutions, whether you like it or not, whether 80% of the people like it or not. Now, I have lived through two such major thought-free events in my adult life. Two major ones, at least. Maybe three. They tend to start with either a big event that connects with some kind of major societal fear, then turns into a hyper-exaggerated sense of threat, or it can be a small event that snowballs into something completely out of proportion to the original event because it fits a popular narrative or one favored by the media or economic or political gatekeepers. And if those three are working together, it can get really crazy. The Reichstag fire would be a great example of this. So how can these events be identified, particularly for the younger among you? This will happen. You will see this. The major clue that you have entered a no-thought event is when you were surrounded not just by irrationality, but also an epic level of social coercion. You will see censorship that would have been unthinkable yesterday suddenly rationalized in the name of public safety or the good of the nation. War is a pretty good pretext, but I've seen this without a war, too. There is one narrative. You must repeat that narrative or shut up. And whether or not that narrative is true is completely irrelevant. If the non-thinkers are really aggressive, you may even see compelled speech. 
because during these events, facts are not a defense. <laughs> Don't come at these people with facts. It'll get you in trouble. You know, not opinions, actual, incontrovertible, objective facts. The world temporarily enters just a more primitive state. Um, and once you see this happening, <laughs> that's your cue to just kind of step back and write it out. And the craziest part of this is that most people know it as it's happening, but they can't speak. So time drags on. A few people pop their heads above the ramparts, then a few more, and soon there is an exponential release of reason. This is the beauty of being old, by the way, because you've seen this cycle before, so you can observe these things happening in real time. And the cascading events are just laughably predictable, if not kind of depressing, because it's not like it won't happen again. I will live through several more of these in my lifetime. Um, that's not going to change. You just got to be able to identify it and ride it. And I think that's exactly what happened here with the boycott. It started with an act of collective madness and ended with individual courage. Now, the bravery of those five men just released a contagion of courage that instantly dissolved the boycott. No one wanted this. It was stupid at the beginning, and it was even dumber now at the end. And suddenly, everyone was free to say so, even though many of them had probably thought this for quite a long time. And the men who were first the ones who broke the mental dam, so to speak, they became Islamic heroes, even those who never became Muslims. You know, times like these make for pretty strange alliances and cross-political heroes, people who transcend the labels of the time, like Mutam ibn Adi. Now, Mutam, I believe, died a pagan. But nonetheless, he was remembered by Muslims for his act of courage in ripping apart the boycott proclamation. This is what the Muslims chose to remember, even though his actions after this event were a bit of a mixed bag. He protected Muslims on multiple occasions, even hosting Muhammad on a visit to Mecca in 620 and providing him an armed escort. But he also called Muhammad a liar that same year. Despite that, Muhammad's favorite poet, Hassan ibn Thabit, upon hearing that Mutam ibn Adi had died, wrote a poem mourning him, immortalizing his act of courage. Weep, O I, the people's leader, be generous with thy tears. If they run dry, then pour out blood. Mourn the leader of both the pilgrim sites to whom men owe gratitude so long as they can speak. If glory could immortalize anyone, his glory would have kept Mutam alive today. So finally, the siege was broken. Like the British, the will of the Banu Hashim outlasted the will of its persecutors. Too much material was getting through anyway and neither the Quraysh nor the Germans had enough muscle to complete the enemy's isolation. So the siege breaks, 
and the war enters a brief lull. But the fighting would still last much, much longer. For Britain and its allies, the Battle of the Atlantic turned in their favor as early as the middle of 1941, or as late as 1942. The happy time, as the German submariners call it, was over. Britain was now on the front foot, and it would begin its ground offensive a few years later. For the Muslims, the boycott ended in 619, and in a few years the Muslims would have a new home and a new military position, one strong enough to counterpunch against the Quraysh. But that period of a few years would be far harder on the Muslims than it was on the British. And particularly, it was hard on Muhammad and the people he loved. The year following the boycott would be the worst year of Muhammad's life. 619, the year of sorrow. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next time. Inshallah. Thank you for listening to Islam for Christians. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep this show ad-free, you can also visit my Patreon page and subscribe. I'm at patreon.com slash Islam for Christians. That's patreon.com slash Islam for Christians.